Thanks, Bill. Good morning, everyone. Thanks, Ryan, for leading us this morning in worship. It's a real blessing. Thank you all for being here. I know I'm seeing many empty seats. I know there are several people that are home and sick today, some sick, some just home quarantined because they've been exposed. Seems like we're obviously hitting a, a spike with this virus, and it just seems to be sweeping through like wildfire. But um, we can be thankful for the most part. Ver symptoms are quite quite mild. We thank God for every time that that's the case. Pray for those that are experiencing some hardship there, but thank you for doing your part and uh, working together. Glad you're here. Uh, hopefully many are joining us online as well. Uh, we're going to take some time in God's Word. We're in Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, so if you have your Bible with you, we'll read a passage together. Let me pray, ask for the Spirit's help both in the preaching and the hearing and the application of it. Father, we come before you and set ourselves, our hearts, our minds, our bodies in front of your word and say, Lord, speak to us. We're yours. You have purchased us as your own. We belong to you. And having you as our master and our Lord, is there is no greater privilege. And so we willingly yield ourselves to you. Speak according to your will. Make things clear. Illuminate our hearts and minds and guide us in the details of life into living out and practicing what you've said for your glory. Amen. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. We'll read through verse 37 together. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Ever since an event early in history that we call the fall, ever since that moment where the first couple decided to disregard, disbelieve God's Word, begin to make decisions apart from God's Word and apart from His authority, that moment has plunged us into a deep-seated identity crisis. 
that you and I have inherited and we struggle with. Ever since that separation from God, ever since that separation of I'm not submitted to what God says, His word is now in question. I'm the arbiter, I'm the decision maker, I'm the one who decides what is right, what is wrong, will I believe Him, will I not? Ever since that moment, you and I have been plunged, all of humanity born into this deep-seated identity struggle. Who am I? Where do I fit in? Where do I belong? How do I measure up? Just how important am I? And how do I compare with others? Am I better? Am I worse? Am I higher? Am I lower? We wrestle with questions like this. We think about questions like this almost without trying. They're just there. They exist in our heart and we struggle. And so much, many of our struggles and our challenges in our own soul come out of this very identity struggle. It's also a huge source of the trouble we have between us. The times we can't get along, the times we can't function well together, a lot of that trouble comes out of this deep-seated identity crisis, figuring out where we stand, how do we measure up, how do we compare. When Jesus came, He came to make this right. He came to fix this significant problem in our hearts and in our lives. Now, when Jesus came, He came to bring the kingdom of God. This was the introduction of Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. This is how Jesus launched His ministry, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, this good news. He brought this kingdom, and like every kingdom, in that kingdom, there is a status for the citizens. Every citizen of that kingdom has its status, and in every kingdom there is a kind of criteria that determines greatness and value. Each kingdom has a way of identifying who's great and who is not, who is most and who is least. Jesus came proclaiming, bringing, opening the doors to His kingdom, and in that kingdom there is a criteria for greatness. But hang on, that criteria for greatness in the kingdom that Christ brought is so radically different than the one you and I have been born into and have lived in and have been breathing the air of all of our lives. This is one of the greatest shifts in the way we think, in the way we see ourselves, and how we see others. This is where we feel it the most, just how dramatically different it is to follow Christ versus not. That decision, that transition, it plays out in a practical way. And this issue of how we see ourselves and what it means to be great is the most dramatic, most significant, most obvious, most hard to grasp, most nearly impossible to practice difference 
in actually being a disciple of Jesus. So we need as much help as we can get if we're going to get this. The secret to greatness. And the simple secret to greatness is to be the servant of all. We're getting some big deal, hard to comprehend, difficult to apply lessons in discipleship. Last week, we've got problems that are too big for us that will not be tackled and dealt with except through dependent prayer upon the Lord. This week, true greatness. What does it really mean to be great in God's eyes? We need help with this one. This one's tough. This is a big change. This is a huge transition. So let's lay it out like this. First point, true greatness, then failed greatness. And the third point, why true greatness is truly great. We begin the passage that we read does, even though maybe subtly, lays out very clearly true greatness. There's a shift in the Gospel of Mark, and I've talked about this, so maybe you're tired of hearing it, but the first half keeps proving the point about Jesus' authority. Chapters 1 through 8 is all about who is Jesus, and look at how great His authority is. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's the most compassionate. He's the wisest. He's the most powerful. And when that question is finally answered by the disciples, and that culmination comes in Peter's confession, who do you say that I am, Peter? Oh, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Okay, there it is. Case closed. We've completed. Now you've got it. You get who Jesus is. And from there, we move into the second half. And the scenes change a bit, and now Jesus starts talking about going to the cross. We've established the fact that Jesus is great, all-powerful, has full authority. Now let me introduce you to phase two. Jesus is going to suffer and die. And he gives this proclamation. In fact, Mark gives it to us three times. And each time he lays out one of these three proclamations that he is going to suffer and die and be raised again, along with each comes this major discipleship lesson. What does it mean to follow Jesus? So the, the making disciples aspect of Jesus' ministry, the intensity of it is going up. In other words, Jesus is beginning to talk about there's coming a day when I'm going to leave. I'm not going to be here anymore. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be crucified, and I'm going to be raised. But I'm not going to be here with you. And so, guys, 12 guys, we need to step up your game. We need to get you ready. So the discipleship lessons are on the increase. They become uh, predominant in the, in the text. And each time he makes this pronouncement, he follows it with a discipleship lesson. I'm going to suffer and die. If you save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll save it. Last week, a lesson in prayer. Big problems only handled through prayer. Our text that we read this morning is the second pronouncement. Now, this pronouncement includes a little detail which is unique 
to this pronouncement wasn't in the second, that he will be handed over, he will be betrayed. The Son of Man will be handed over into the hands of men. This comment adds into this pronouncement a sort of human agency of what's going to happen. In other words, he's going to suffer, he's going to die, he's going to be raised again, but I want you to know I'm going to suffer at the hands of men. I'm going to be handed over to them. Now, who is doing the handing over is not explicit in the text. One of the church fathers, Origen, says it's referring to God. God the Father hands over the Son into the hands of men. Others, commentators, would say it was talking about Judas. Judas betrayed him, handed him over into the authorities. Now, both are true, but I believe the point in the phrase is not so much who is doing the handing, although we have that clearly in other scriptures to play out who that is. The point is being made that he's who he's handed to. It's a little bit of a play on words, the Son of Man is going to be handed over into the hands of men. In other words, there's an action taking place here that has some human agency that involves some hostility. People are going to crucify Jesus. People are going to cause Jesus to suffer. And what this does is brings in a component that shows something of the greatness of Jesus. In other words, he is going to give himself and he is going to die for the people who are crucifying him. He is in the hands of men. He is going to suffer at their hands and yet he gives himself willingly even for those hands of men that are causing his suffering. So in chapters 1 through 8, we see the greatness of Jesus' power, his compassion, his wisdom, and his authority. Now in chapters 9 through 16, we're going to see another side to his greatness. And he made himself the least in how he laid his life down for others, even the ones who betrayed him, even those who denied him, even those who crucified him. Now we're getting a picture of the truly greatest one. And we're getting a picture of true greatness in the kingdom. The secret to greatness in God's kingdom. Be last, and God will make you first. Philippians chapter 2 gives a beautiful portrayal of what took place from this perspective. And interesting, as Paul's writing this letter to the church in Philippians, it's really beginning with personal application, talking to you and me. This is how you should behave. And this is, this is what he writes. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, now here comes 
our example, our champion who went before us. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Jesus made himself the least, and God made him the greatest. He is the most explicit and powerful picture of true greatness. Our lesson begins with looking at Christ. And not just that he was our example of greatness, though he was that. But the fact that he made himself nothing is the very thing that made us be given access to God. So we have true greatness, the truly great one. Secondly, we have the failed greatness, the failure of the disciples. I told you last week, these guys are on a serious losing streak. They cannot seem to get anything right in these couple chapters here. And we should all be quite thankful. What a grace of God, what a blessing that these guys kept screwing up and kept missing it. And because if you're honest, and most of you are, when we read about the disciples' failure, we see ourselves. So it's easy to laugh initially. It's easy to scratch your head and wonder, what, what is it with these guys? Why, why don't they get it? It seems so plain when you read it, and yet you just turn around and look in the mirror, and it doesn't take but a half a day, a day, a week to realize, oh, we are so much like them. I have to say, after being a Christian for, for decades, I find myself more and more amazed how much of real-life trouble is right there in the Bible, in particularly in the Gospels, in particularly with the disciples being made disciples. When I look at my own walk and my own growth as a disciple of Jesus, I, I can take almost every struggle and go to a chapter and verse and say, ah, Jesus dealt with that with his disciples. They talked about that. Those guys had the same problems that I have. I struggle with the same things that, that, that they do. So we should. it's the grace of God that it's here. It's the grace of God that they missed it, that they didn't understand, that they said stupid things, that they did the wrong things, that they, they missed the mark often because it gives us hope. Because they made it. We get into the book of Acts and we realize, oh, they, they made it. God's work in them actually was accomplished and it can be in your life and mine as well. So Jesus tells them again about the cross and they still, they don't understand. Why not? Was it just too incomprehensible? The first time Jesus made the pronouncement, Mark specifically says, and he just spoke plainly to them. It seems so straightforward, and yet how strange, but maybe not so strange, how many times our own prejudice, our own preconceived ideas, our own set of expectations keep us from hearing the truth. 
champion, the Savior, who's going to suffer and die? That doesn't really make that much sense to me. How can you comprehend your leader who you've come to admire and respect and even worship? How can you comprehend the idea of him actually being least, last, submitted, suffering <laughs> at the hands of men? Doesn't make sense. Jesus gets them alone. They're in the house, and he asks them a question. Guys, what were you talking about on the way? Not a question to know, presumably, a question to help, a question to disciple them, a question to train them to expose and to help and to lead and to care for. It wasn't that Jesus didn't know what was going on, but they, they refused to answer on the grounds that it would incriminate them. I don't know if you're like me and you've done something stupid. On occasion, I do stupid things. And there's always this very awkward, very embarrassing moment. Usually happens about the time somebody says to me, what are you doing? And it just kind of hits you. Well, now that you mention it, <laughs> I'm doing something stupid. Uh, this doesn't make any sense. This is, uh, this, I shouldn't be doing this. I, I, okay, I get it. I get it. Your question just exposed, and so I'm going to plead the fifth. I don't, really don't have an answer to your question. And I understand you probably didn't ask the question expecting me to give you an answer. You asked the question in order to get me to sort of wake up and realize what's been going on here. J.C. Ryle writes, who, who would have thought that a few fishermen and tax collectors could have been overcome by rivalry and the desire for supremacy. You know, we read this and we think, um, <laughs> these guys were right to be embarrassed and to be a little bit quieted down and dumbfounded and really not willing to, to answer. Honestly, guys, you, you bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, you gather up, you follow Jesus, you identify him as the Messiah, you're, you're 12 guys chosen by him, you don't deserve it, he's pouring his life into you, and you get a little hike going, and the conversation ends up, you're fighting over who's the greatest, who's better than the other, and yet there it is. And yet here we are. Is it really so uncommon? Really so hard to believe? Are our hearts really so free of envy and jealousy? Are we not often looking at each other and comparing ourselves with another and wondering where, where do we stand? Why is he or she there and I'm here? And is it really, really so strange? Now, we don't really know. We don't have the detail. Why, why, why were they talking about this? How, how did this conversation come up? And it's, you know, we could speculate a couple things. Maybe the, they were comprehending at least a little bit of what Jesus was saying. Guys, I'm leaving. Next question. Well, Jesus, if you're leaving, who's going to be in charge? 
In other words, which one of us is going to be the boss when the boss is gone? Could have been. There's another very likely speculation because we're right on the heels of three of them being singled out to go up on the mountain with Jesus and had this glorious encounter with Jesus and oh yeah not to forget Moses and Elijah show up as well so we've got three of the twelve are on the mountain with Jesus in quite the exclusive special encounter and now they come down well they when they get to the bottom of the mountain the nine are caught in a, in a crowd, in an argument, and there's fighting and there's bickering, and they just experience a significant failure in trying to cast out a demon. And now all 12 are walking together and sharing stories and talking. It's not hard to imagine a little bit of jealousy going on there with the three that got picked out and brought up to the mountain while the rest were down in the valley dealing with the real stuff of life. But now, now they're in Jesus' presence. And now Jesus, face to face with them, says, so guys, tell me, what were you talking about? And the moment of shame, embarrassment, they felt it, and they didn't want to answer. And it started to become clear. They had some false ideas about greatness. It's all conversations looking a little bit different right now. The common, call it worldly, understanding of greatness, just so normal for us. It is so common. But we see here, it always leads to trouble. It is always something ugly. It is always something counter to Jesus and his kingdom. It kept these guys from being able to hear and understand the words of Jesus, cut off communication with him, kept them silent and withdrawn. Brought them in conflict with each other. They were arguing with each other. They were debating with each other. They were against each other. They were comparing themselves with one another. So we got a separation from Jesus. We got a bickering group of 12 guys that can't seem to get along that are fighting for the top post. It is true what James wrote in his epistle, chapter 3, verse 16. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. In other words, what James is saying is like, once the jealousy gets in your heart and you start living out of that and functioning out of that jealousy, there's no limit to the trouble that will come in a situation like that. Nothing will stop you. There's no limitation. All kinds of trouble. All kinds of vile practices. Once you're jealous. Once you're comparing. Once you're striving with 
jockeying for position with another, there's no end to the disorder and the trouble. If that's the principle of the kingdom, the kingdom cannot stand. We'll always crumble. We'll always divide. We'll always be troubled. So Jesus comes and brings an altogether different kingdom, completely contrary, completely opposite in this way. If you want to be great, be the least and serve everybody. The third point is why true greatness is really great. Uh, let's be honest. If I said to you, okay, if you really want to be great, you have to be last. You need to make yourself the least, and you have to be everybody's servant. You've got to ask yourself, why? Why would anybody say yes to that? Why are we doing this again? Why would we accept this? What, what is so great about being great in God's eyes? From here, Jesus has an object lesson for us. An object lesson to show true greatness. He takes a child. He takes a child, puts him in the midst. So we've got the 12 disciples. They're in the living room. He grabs a child, young boy, brings him into the middle, puts his arms around this child, sort of takes him, maybe takes him up, sets him on his lap. And he's going to teach these guys a lesson. Now, what we need to understand that the focus is not the child and the lesson is not you need to be like a child or there's something about this child that you need to understand so that you can emulate, be like. Uh, that's a little bit later. When we get to chapter 10, verse 15, there's going to be faith like a child. There's going to be a, another object lesson with a child. This one is not that. The child is not the object, the child is the adjective. Jesus is the object. What the point here is that he takes the child because the child in that culture at that time has virtually no status. This we have to like step into the culture of the text because we don't think like this. It's not common in our culture. It's not the way we think about children. We value children. We build Disneyland for children. We build Chuck E. Cheese's for children. We do these things for the children because we value the children. I'm not trying to make a value statement on that culture or our culture. What I'm saying is the point Jesus was making was that this child has virtually no status in this culture, in this society. We see this in the book of Galatians. When Paul is writing and making this point about being under the law versus coming out from under the law and being under grace, he starts off chapter 4, verse 1. He says that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave. You see the cultural string that he's pulling on. The son, the heir, who's going to inherit everything. He's saying as long as that boy is still a child. He really is nothing more than a slave. So now you have a picture of what the culture identifies as the status of a child. Jesus took the lowest person on the social ladder. 
He took the person with no status in that culture, put his arms around him, took him to himself, and welcomed him. child is not the object the child is the adjective Jesus is the object who takes the child in his arms so that once again we look to Jesus and we see a picture of what greatness is the greatest one lays his arms around the weakest one the least in society and says this is what true greatness looks like receiving the least welcoming receiving like a guest into your home come on in sit at my table what are your needs what can i do for you how can i serve you are you hungry are you thirsty are you cold that's what he's talking about receiving them in and thinking about what would serve you what are your needs how can I be here for your good? He takes this little child who everybody in the room would have disregarded. Is it why is this child even here? They don't belong. They have no status. And Jesus takes him and welcomes him. For Jesus to say, look, if you welcome this little child, like I'm welcoming this little child, I want you to know what that means. It's like you are welcoming me. And just welcoming me no you're welcoming the one who sent me the father when you and I can reach out and welcome the least when we practice that and live that out what that means is we have come into the heart and mind of Christ and the father who sent him and are now living in and motivated by and comprehending and practicing the very kind of kingdom that Jesus brought. This is how our lives begin to harmonize and resonate with God's love for the world. This is the essence of the gospel itself. Because we were that child we were that one with no social status no greatness in god's eyes fallen separated at enmity rebellious against and yet what is the good news what is the gospel oh that the greatest came down and embraced the least you were the least I was the least God's grace comes into our lives and calls us to himself that's the essence of the gospel and he's saying if you get that then you'll understand what I'm saying now go and do likewise now go and make yourself the servant of the least and you do that and you will be the greatest when we do that it shows that we get it 
when we do it, when we live it, when we practice it, it, it proves that we understand and comprehend this new kingdom. And we enter into a new kind of greatness. What's so great about being great if it means being last? Let's just acknowledge how difficult it is. Let's acknowledge how contrary it is. Let's acknowledge how utterly opposite it is from so much of what we feel and think of what's churning around in our hearts. The, the two kingdoms could not be more different on this front. The kingdom of this world, meaning the governing assumptions about a world apart from God. The first shall be first and the last shall be last. The greatest is the greatest and the least is the least. Receiving is better than giving and being served is better than having to serve. That's the world we were born into. Jesus comes proclaiming a new kingdom where Christ reigns and people willingly, lovingly follow. The first shall be last and the last first. It is better to give than it is to receive. The greatest shall be the least and look to serve others. I say, friends, we need all the help we can get on this one. This is a big change. But it's also extremely life-changing. This is how Jesus saved us. He did this, and we're saved. He made himself nothing, and we've been brought in. So it's like, well, what's so great about it? Well, we get to know God and enjoy his grace and live with him forever. That's what's so great about it. That's what this principle does. When Jesus does this very thing, we come into the grace of God and we're set free. And our sins are forgiven. And we have the grace of God in our lives. And we now commune with a holy God, which we could not have been further from prior to Jesus doing this. This is also an unusually effective tool in our mission. To paraphrase a little bit from J.C. Ryle, he says, there's just nothing that breaks down prejudices. There is nothing that convinces unbelievers that Christianity is a reality, and there's nothing that shakes the world quite like this. When we get this, when we practice it, it is life-altering. It changes people's perspective. I've been reading a book recently about unbelief. It's called Unbelievers, and the, the author is making this point. There's a lot of people don't believe in Christianity. But he's trying to make a case that, that says basically it's, it's not so much that we lay out our doctrine. Somebody says, I don't believe that. There's more of an emotional underlying activity that's going on there. I don't believe it because of what I've seen, what I've experienced, how I see you treat each other, how I've been treated by you. There's usually a lot of that going along, those underlying perceptions and experiences. And J.C. Ryle is tapping into that and saying, look, folks, if we want to move forward in our mission together, if we want to effectively proclaim the gospel and have people see it clearly, understand it, and be willing to receive it, 
this very aspect of greatness, if we live it and practice it, will be a convincing component. It will prove how genuine our message actually is. People will take note. Oh, they are willing to sacrifice, lay down their lives, serve one another. When they see this in the church, I don't know if you know this, but we have kind of an unwritten policy in the church here. When you come in the door, you leave your resume at the door. I'm great for all the wonderful accomplishments that you've all accomplished. Congratulations, happy for you. When we come in here, we're all members of one body and every member is valuable. And we all stand at a level ground at the foot of the cross, all just in the same level of need of God's grace in our lives. And we come and we interact with one another and we treat one another as, as equals, at co-heirs of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, we are together in this. We are family. There's no status as far as that goes. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. says, Hey, look, brothers, just, just make note of this. Think about your calling. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Certainly could be that some of them were, but here's, here's the point. Look, not all of you are, but it makes no difference because now you're a member of God's family and we're in this together. What could be more damaging to the testimony of the church to see us arguing like the disciples over who's first, who's second, who's third. What would so take away the legitimacy of our message than for us to be bickering over status and position against one another? Nothing helps open the door to non-Christians quite like when Christians live out this practice and nothing closes it quite like the door gets closed when we don't. Nothing says genuine quite like when somebody of, by appearance, higher status condescends to someone of lower status. When someone who could be taking a high seat positions themselves to serve others and expecting nothing in return. And invite the worship team to come on up. I'm just about finished. I want to close by encouraging us to cultivate this mindset. That's what the scriptures call us to do. I want you to think about this. It's what the passage in Philippians is saying. I want you to consider this and, and, and think about this. And that comes with a kind of warning. Look, if, if you don't intentionally take time and think about how can I serve others, something else will come in its place. You and I will automatically find ourselves entertaining thoughts somewhere along the lines of, uh, why aren't people serving me more? And why aren't people acknowledging my place more? Why don't people see my value and my greatness? Friends, 
these kinds of thoughts, they will come in automatically. You don't have to try and cultivate that kind of a heart. You do have to grasp this new kingdom mentality, the secret of greatness, and you do have to intentionally think about this and apply this. Because if you don't, not only will you think those thoughts, but it will be followed by resentment and bitterness and division and strife. And once that jealousy sets in, there is no end to the trouble. So let me pose some questions to you. Who can you serve? Who might you be overlooking? Is there someone that you might be taking for granted? Who's God bringing into your path for you to serve, care for, consider what they need, and step in and help meet that need? I feel to a great extent I'm preaching to the choir because I love this church, and one of the things I love is the way people serve. And I love when I encounter and I hear comments and I observe things taking place and I realize so many grasp this. And so the encouragement this morning is like, oh, yes, amen, all the more. All the more. Keep going. Don't, don't let up. Don't drift. We'll drift from it if, if we let ourselves drift from it. But the more we press into this, the more we think about this, the more we retrain ourselves and our thinking and our perspective of ourselves and our perspectives of one another and seek to serve one another, it will be life transforming. It will change the testimony of the church. It will change our effectiveness as a church. It will help propel the gospel message out into this community what we've been praying for, hoping for, and wanting to see. So last week, we committed to being a praying people to express our dependence upon the Lord. This week, can we express a commitment to be a serving people, to understand the secret of greatness, to understand this is about us laying down our lives for others, friends, it will not be wasted. It, is, it might be in secret, but it's not secret to God. He sees it all. Let's stand together. Father, we're the recipients of you making yourself a servant on our behalf. And we know so much grace and so much goodness and so much kindness because you did that for us. And in that, you call us to do likewise. We do it for no other reason. We are able to do it for no other reason than the fact that you did it for us. And we have real grace in our hearts and lives for it. I pray that we would all be 
taking time and open up our hearts and our minds and genuinely ask you, Spirit of God, lead us in how you would be calling us to serve others. And I pray that the excuses would be held at bay and that there would be a fresh openness in our hearts to say, here, my Lord, send me. Do it, Lord, so that your gospel, your grace could be more clearly seen to all around us in Jesus' name. Amen.